This is the Church Security Made Simple podcast, giving leaders practical solutions to help make your community safer. I'm your host, Simon Osmo, and I'm on a mission to keep his churches safe. Now, it's been over 10 years since the Lord called me into security ministry, and as a national church safety practitioner supporting churches across the country, I'll share my expertise to give you simple solutions to keep your church safe. So if you're ready to make your church security simple, come join me and let's dive into this week's episode as we learn how to plan, prepare and protect our ministries. Welcome to another episode of the Church Security Made Simple podcast. I'm so happy that you are joining me today. And we're going to cover a really interesting and topical subject right now. We're going to be talking about active shooters, but specifically around the pathway to violence, knowing that no one just snaps. We hear these things in the news, tragic events across the US, but no one just snaps. There is always behaviours There's always warning signs. There's always clues that give us an indication that something is not quite right and that this may lead to the point of escalation and in where deadly force is concerned, that results in numerous, numerous lives being taken. So I'm going to start us off with a little bit of a foundation. I'm going to talk about uh, my good friend, Dr. James Densley, who's another British American like me living here in the US, actually in Minnesota where I reside and Dr. Gillian Peterson. Now, they have researched every mass shooting from 1966 to the current day, and their organization is called The Violence Project. I'm going to put a link below in the show notes. I really encourage you to go and check out their research. Fascinating data. As they've researched every mass shooting from 1966 to the current day, at this time of recording, I believe we're around about the 180 mark. Uh, And they found that there's four things that mass shooters generally have in common. And they wrote about them uh, in this book, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. And actually, if you go to page 149, you'll see some of my work, which made it into the book around conversational interviewing uh, in and around um, active violence. So I encourage you to go and check out that book. Um, But in that book and their research, they have found that there's four things that generally, generally mass shooters have in common. I want to preface this with the fact that not only did they interview families and victims of mass shootings, uh, they also spoke to perpetrators. I believe they had access to six mass murderers. So it is arguably one of the most comprehensive databases in and around active violence uh, in the US. But their research found that there's four things that these mass shooters generally have in common. And the first one is that they've suffered severe trauma and abuse. And we're talking severe trauma. They have been sexually abused. They have been physically assaulted. They've had suicide within their families. You know, severe, severe trauma. The worst things that you can think have happened is happened to these mass shooters. They've also had a marked crisis point in their life either immediately before they carried out their deadly force attack or during, and also their suicidality um, tied into that as well. So at the point of these mass shooters, these people are in crisis or they're um, in suicidality. Dr. James Denzi often says that mass shooters are not just homicides, 
they are suicides. These people do not intend to walk out the door. There's a suicidality to their behavior. And then the first is around script and validation. Now, the script component is that mass shooters study other mass murderers. If someone's um, killed 10, these people want to kill 15. They'll go online and they'll study how they carried out the mass attack. They'll try to emulate it. They'll try to improve upon it. They'll copy what they do. And then the validation. These mass murderers are seeking validation for their ideology. Someone that feels like me. Someone who understands who I am. This person gets me. There's a script and a validation around their behaviors. And then the fourth one, which we can't control too much, is the means and then the access to firearms. All these perpetrators, the 180 some mass murderers, all had the means to carry out their attack, meaning they had access to firearms. Now, the purpose of this podcast interview, of this podcast discussion rather, is we're just going to focus on one and two, which is the trauma and crisis. And I want to start with Dylan Storm Ruth, that most of you will know who is the mass murderer who in 2015, at a Wednesday weeknight Bible study, he walked into the AME church in Charleston, South Carolina, one of the most historic African-American churches in the country, and he took nine human lives during a Bible study. Now, Ruth will say that he is a white supremacist. Others, myself included, would say this is a young man who's deeply troubled and has mental illness. A roof would just say, I'm a white supremacist, that's why I did it, was to go and kill African Americans. But what's interesting now, that when we talk about the pathway to violence, is that Dylan Storm Roof, he was troubled, if you like. He was radicalised long before he walked into that church in that weeknight Bible study and took nine lives. Now, his parents were divorced before he was born. Now, that alone doesn't make it an indicator. But when you see the rest of his behavior around his upbringing, in nine years, he went to seven schools. In 2009, when he was most probably 12, 13 years old, it was reported that he had OCD. Now, he failed the ninth grade twice and he dropped out of school for good in 2010. My math isn't quick enough to do it live during this podcast. But again, he was early, you know, sort of mid-teens here when he dropped out of school, having failed the ninth grade twice. And then when his father remarried, he married someone called Paige Mann. Now, then when they got divorced, she said that he was physically abusive and sexually abusive towards her, including rape. So we've got so much trauma and abuse within his background. So can you see the pathway can you see the behaviours uh, closely aligned to the, the violence project data, the trauma and abuse? Now, we also saw with Dylan Roof is that people close to him expressed concern with his behaviour. He would often get drunk and he would alternate between partying with black friends and then spouting about white supremacy. I mean, it made no sense. He's got black friends, but then when he gets drunk, he's spouting white supremacy. It made no sense. Now, his uncle, when Ruth was 19 years old, so only two years before he walked into the church to take the human life, his uncle expressed concern because he was withdrawn. Um, he had a lack of direction. He was spending too much time on the computer and all these things that we hear about these psychologists say. And then when his uncle pushed him to get a job, Rufert said that he was depressed 
and that he couldn't leave his bedroom. He was just too depressed. Um, I don't even want to get up in the morning. Never mind, go and get a job. So again, can we see the trauma, the abuse, the things that the violence project say that all these four things that these mass murderers have in common? And now the next one I want to talk about is in Sutherland Springs in 2017, when again, tragically, 26 people lost their lives at the hands of an offender called Devon Keeley, who walked in to the morning Bible group, sorry, morning service around 11am and takes 26 human lives. But again, there was a pathway that Dylan Keeley took before he walked into that church. There were signs, there was behaviours, there were stressors and indicators to say, all is not well. Now, when he was in high school, he had disciplinary problems, hostility, drugs. And then when he left school and joined the Air Force, he had a track record of domestic assault against his wife and his child. And he would make death threats to superiors. Uh, he self-harmed on one occasion because uh, he, and he was hospitalized. And when he was hospitalized, he fled the hospital. Uh, he was bringing illegal firearms onto, onto the base, uh, threatened his wife with a gun, threatened to kill his wife's family. Um, you know, there were so much different things that was going on here. He's convicted in military court and eventually was kicked out on a bad discharge. But can you see that pathway? Can you see how his life closely aligns to the data from the violence project? Severe trauma and abuse, crisis, suicidality, there's a pathway that all these mass murderers take long before they walk into the door and take human life. And now also with David Keeley, after the military, again, accused of sexual and physical assault. He had an order of protection out against him, uh, mistreatment of animals. We all know what psychologists say about those that mistreat animals and kill animals. Uh, you know, he was described as being creepy. He was fired from a job for being creepy. It was alleged, an allegation that he used to purchase animals for target practice. Again, we know what psychologists say about those that mistreat animals. And he became very vocally anti-religious, including online, uh, spouting um, sort of anti-religious um, views and opinions and just really being polarizing in his comments online. Now, and similar to other mass shooters, and also, again, ties into the data from the violence project is that he expressed his obsession with mass murders and particularly the Charleston mass murder. He studied Dylan Roof. Now, he joked about committing mass murders leakage. There's always leakage in these places where they will tell someone their behavior will indicate or if you put all the pieces together, you will see that this person is crying out for support because something bad is about to happen. So he joked about committing mass murders. Before the shooting, he posted a picture of a rifle on Facebook. And on that morning, he sent threatening text messages to his estranged wife, to his mother-in-law, because obviously he was committing domestic assault against his wife. And so the mother-in-law naturally was intervening, telling him he was a bad person, but he was sending her threatening text messages because he saw her as someone that was getting in the way. Now, we also know with Keeley that a few days before the incident at the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, he did attend a full festival wearing all black. And people were saying that he was acting so, so strangely that someone even actually checked that he wasn't carrying a firearm. That's how concerned they were. So again, 
with Keely, similar to Ruth, can you see the pathway? Can you see the trauma, the abuse, the lifestyle, the poor decisions, always the behaviours that the violence projects say that these mass shooters have in common? Now, I want to tell you a little bit about what happened in 2009 at Jack Wilson's church at the West Freeway Baptist in Texas. Now, Jack Wilson was the hero on the church safety team when an armed gunman came in and killed two people during a morning service. Jack Wilson eliminated the threat. He killed the bad guy um, and was a hero and is a hero. But I also want to offer a little bit of a different perspective, looking at the pathway to violence that these people go through. That these offenders, yes, they're murderers. Yes, they're bad people. I'm not here to say anything other than what they really are. These aren't bad people. But these are also people that are in crisis and now seeking a deeper meaning to their life. Now, Jack Wilson, he said that he killed evil that day. And perhaps he did but he also killed a person who was suffering from mental illness. He also killed a person who was displaying behaviours that all was not well in their life. So what I'm really saying is that if we look at who these individuals are, there's always these intervention points where we can get to them before they escalate to the point of action. And we saw this in the sentencing of the Parkland shooter, Nicholas Cruz, who killed 16 people at the Parkland High School. But during his sentencing, if you go online, I'll, I'll put a link to this within the YouTube video. If you go online, there's a video of him where he's ho holding his ears. He cannot listen to the audio recordings of him taking six people. The reason why I would answer is that these people are searching. They are seeking. These are people as a house of worship we can really come alongside and help them before they escalate to the point of action. So you're mostly thinking, well, Simon, you've laid out quite a problem there. You've told us about these people are seeking deeper meaning, um, but how can we then intervene and how can we help these individuals who have the trauma and abuse in their background, who may be displaying characteristics that could lead to a deadly force incident? Well, and I think the things that we can do in House of Worship, I'm going to give you um, three things now. And the first one is how do we stop mass shooters? Well, we work with our outreach programs and we find those people where the data says they have a higher likelihood of becoming a mass shooter. So we're going to work with our outreach programs to find those people that have those human brokenness and come alongside them as the church. Now, the second thing, how do we stop mass murderers? Well, we step into the suspicious behavior. These are people that we can help. These are people seeking validation. These are people wanting to be understood. Now, I mentioned that Jack Wilson and his team were heroes, and Jack Wilson is a hero. However, on that day at West Freeway, they did not step into the suspicious behavior. They did not step into the indicators uh, they followed the gentleman on the camera, but they didn't step into the moment. Had they done, could there have been a different outcome? We will never know. But how do we stop mass shooters? We step into the suspicious behaviour. We have those conversations. Welcome to Westwood Community Church. What brings you here today? Pause 
listen. We're going to step into the conversation. This is a person who, if they're crying out, that we could help them overcome and come out the other side before they escalate and do something that they will regret and that will be tragedy in one of our communities. And then the third thing, how do we stop mass shooters, is really know the triggers and the stressors of the pathway to violence and offer support. Now, I've spoken about um, Dylan Roos past. I spoke about Keeley's past. There's these triggers, these stressors. There's a pathway to violence which occurs in all these mass shooters. And what can we do to stop mass shootings? We can offer support when we see those triggers. Really, really important. Now, I want to start to close out this podcast by telling you about a new course that I have. Now, if like me, you are fascinated with deadly force incidents, it's one of the reasons why a couple of years ago, I created the Active Shooter Intervention and Disruption course. And we've now created it into an online learning where for 90 minutes, I will teach you everything we need to know about deadly force, indicators, warnings, but importantly, how to survive. So if you're interested in learning more about Deadly Force and taking your learning to the next step, um, I'm going to post a link to the course below. Please consider taking that online learning, active shooter intervention and disruption. I really believe that if you take this course, if we understand the pathway, if we understand the human behaviours, and then we align that with keeping ourselves safe, we can really give ourselves the best possible chance to not only identify these individuals long before they carry out this attack, but when we are in the moment, stay safe and survive. Now, frankly, if you have liked what I've got to say, if you have um, any different opinions from me, I always love to hear different views and opinions on the pathway to violence on stressors. Please leave a comment below, share your views, um, send me a message. I always love to hear um, different views and opinions as to what I've said. But for now, you have a blessed day. Consider checking out that new teaching on active violence and I'll see you in that next episode. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Church Security Made Simple podcast. If you're looking for training on how to keep you and your church community safe, or if you're interested in working with me on my five-week group coaching program, please head over to worshipsecurity.org. And if you've enjoyed this podcast episode, don't forget to rate and review wherever you are listening. Now, I'll be back with you on the next episode, but until then, stay safe, have a blessed day, and remember, always plan, prepare, and protect your ministry.